I'm Kendra Rogers, and this is Paper Napkin. I am so glad you're here. The world felt distant and connection felt hard. So I reached out to the most interesting people I know for a conversation about how we can build stronger connections and more meaningful relationships. Grab a pen, a piece of paper, or a paper napkin and get ready to connect. Chris Neeland is the co-founder and CEO of Cult Collective and the Gathering of Cult Brands, a masterclass for business leaders on creating marketing and communications with purpose and value that recently hosted incredible speakers, including Bazoma St. John, Chief Marketing Officer of Netflix, Rory Sutherland of Ogilvy, and big names from Barbie to Budweiser, Peloton to Smokes Poutinery, just to name a few. Chris is also an adjunct professor, husband, father, dog father, and busy, busy human being. I was drawn to Chris's ability to connect online and to share his story loudly, clearly, and articulately in a way that really cuts through and creates meaningful connection. You might notice that the sound quality is not quite what you've come to expect but stick with it and let your ears adjust, which they will quite quickly. The conversation that we had and the raw and vulnerable way that Chris shedded his professional skin to dig deep into the more personal bits means that this is not one to miss. We pulled the curtain back on a LinkedIn phenom and got some pretty interesting insight out of it. I think you'll enjoy. Thank you so much, Chris, for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the very first question that I always ask is what do you do and why? And I think the why is the piece that I'm really getting at, but I want to know what you do. So my primary responsibility is to oversee a group of marketing strategists and brand advisors for a company called Cult Collective. We go into businesses and try to wean them off of their bad behaviors associated with advertising and discounting and try to help inspire them to think completely differently about how they connect with customers, prospects, and staff. And the why I do that is I feel like I was converted 12 years ago to a whole new paradigm about what marketing is, what the role of businesses could be, what the impact we could have on society and in people's lives. And I just felt like, holy crap, we've sold ourselves way too short. We have settled for this transactional, monetary sort of mindset, when in reality, we could be much more substantive and, of course, reap benefits that are financially attractive, but that businesses could achieve more. And that's where we came up with this idea of cult. Like any company can get a customer, but a cult brand is going to get a cult-like follower. And cult-like followers are just more awesome in a variety of ways. And I was disappointed that more and more people weren't pursuing that. And they didn't even know that that was possible. So that's what we decided to devote our careers to. Wow. And you mentioned the paradigm shift. And I actually was looking at your LinkedIn connections. uh, And a lot of people that have given you recommendations have mentioned this idea of a paradigm shift. And I think you are spurring that, it sounds like, in other people as well. I wondered how you 
think you're doing that? Is it something that is intentional in your conversations and in your interactions with other people? Or is it a byproduct of a bigger thing? No, it's very, very intentional. And we've written a whole book on it. I mean, briefly, the paradigm that we're shifting from, and we sort of equate it to something as fundamental as what happened when society learned the earth wasn't flat. And then everything new was discovered and explorers and cultures and resources once they started to sail around the world. That's probably the most popular paradigm that people are aware of. And now we look back at it centuries later and there was silly to ever believe that the earth was flat. But that was the reigning paradigm for millennia. In our world, that paradigm is the purchase funnel. And the purchase funnel has been preached to marketers as early as 1950s as the way that businesses create customers and should go to market. And in 2010, I was exposed to new research where people far smarter than myself with Harvard Business School and McKinsey were the sort of the uh, sponsors behind it asked. Is that paradigm still true, given we have mobile devices and social media and the internet now and in in first world countries like Europe and the US and Canada, there's just so much choice. You know, when the Sears catalog is the biggest thing around, the paradigm's different than what happens when you can get anything at any time delivered to your doorstep. And they came back saying not one iota of it was true. And yet all of our clients continued to adhere to that false paradigm. So I've tried everything. I've tried, you know, I grew up in Texas playing football and responded to the in-your-face coach that's yelling at you and, you know, riding you and belittling you and you're like going to stand up and prove them wrong. And uh, so I think that's how I started. I was a bit crass and a bit in your face. And, you know, other than Texans, I think other people found that a bit offensive or a bit too much. Certainly the Canadian audience was like, what the hell is that guy ranting about? And so I've then tried a a more polite tact. I've tried, don't take it from me, take it from uh, the people that I've uh, talked to. So we, we created an industry event called The Gathering, where we just put brand leader after brand leader on stages to say, listen, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. And so I don't know. I know I'm failing because still way too many brands are doing it wrong. And I'm still just trying to find what's the best voice that's going to resonate. And you're co-founder of Cult Collective, co-founder of The Gathering, co-founder of Communo. You can see where I'm going with this. Co-founder. This podcast is centered around connection, and I'm curious, actually, when it comes to the connections that you've made, it seems as though you're not operating alone at that high level. What impact has that had on the work that you've been able to do? You know, I think I would almost declare as a rule, as a truism, that never go in alone. I really just think that the discipline of starting a business is so robust that it's too hard to be great at all of it. And you need to bring others with you. If they say it takes a village to raise a child, I think it takes a a community to raise a company. And that can be co-founders, the first strategic hires, strategic investors, advisory board members, et cetera. So I'm not saying you have to have, you know, eight original shareholders, but I, I do think that to be great at business development, service delivery, business operations, and uh, account management, client care, I just don't think that those skill sets reside in one person. So 
I think I'm a pretty self-aware individual. I know where my weaknesses are. And so I've always gravitated towards individuals whose strengths uh, are my weaknesses. Uh, I've always looked for my compliment. I think sometimes people get confused that that means that you have to be perfectly compatible. And I don't think that's the case. I see too many people that start businesses with their best friends as an example. And it's kind of a train wreck because they're more compatible than they are compliments. And I'd say the same thing about a relationship, right? I think your spouse or your significant other, you need to be compatible in the important things like shared values. You fight the same way. Do you understand how you communicate? But you shouldn't be compatible in the things that they're good at should not be the same thing that you're good at. And that's how I think you create a better partnership. And I just got really lucky where I found a partner that was really, really complementary to the things that I was good and bad at. And you touched on building a business. You've built sort of three that are operating in different spaces. How have you tried to build connection into them? And I'm thinking of all of them, but especially of the gathering, because it really is based on that idea of first off connecting with the audience, but also before that even connecting with the speakers who are going to be joining you on the stage. Yeah, I think one of the secrets to whatever degree of success we've enjoyed has been these businesses are very symbiotic. So the gathering is a way to perpetuate cults ideology. Communo is a way for brands to enable and to facilitate their cult journeys. Like If I was having a car wash business, a dog walking service, and a private investigator firm, I, those that would be just a distraction. That would just be I'm a hyper entrepreneur looking for a way to diversify my talents or my money. And I don't really support that. And I think you have to be a particularly talented ADHD type individual to have your fingers in so many unrelated things. But I actually think of Colt Camino and the Gathering as they're all part of the same sort of family. First of all, they're all marketing and branding and advertising centric. So we don't really get into accounting or supply chain or you know, other aspects of business. And uh, secondly, you can be a member of all three of those. So gathering attendees can hire cults, gathering cult clients can use Communo for talent and for resources. So I actually think it's pretty, it probably doesn't seem as obvious on my LinkedIn bio, but in my life, I think of by growing one, I'm actually aiding the other two. So it's interesting. And going back to what you were saying, actually around finding a partner and a co-founder, it sounds like you've also created those complementary abilities across the businesses that you're in. You're creating connections between them in order to facilitate the best experience for the people that are involved and likely for yourself as well, right? Not spreading yourself too thin, but starting to see those interconnections in order to fill gaps in the market. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, here's a great example. So Ryan, my business partner, as part of his responsibilities for Colt, formed a relationship with a guy named John Windsor. And I think it was out of just admiration and respect for what John was doing. John was the OG behind a a model in the States called Victor and Spoils, which was sort of the first sort of crowdsourced ad agency and very, very successful. And through their personal relationship, Ryan then invited John to come speak as a keynote at the gathering. 
And that furthered the circle of friends and associates that we now knew each other. And it gave a bigger audience to people who thought John was quite impressive. John then invited Ryan to participate on something he was working on tied to the Center for Work Transformation and thinking about open talent. John then gave Ryan a connection to NASA, who became a client of Communo. And so, you know, it wasn't disingenuous. It wasn't like Ryan met John to work with NASA, but it was through this series of fortunate events. And I think Ryan has a very good approach to connection, which is always give more than you take. So Ryan's always kind of a 5149 guy where I'm here to try to make your life better. And as a result, good things happen. Call it karma, call it just smart, you know, connection building. But that's an example where it came full circle, where we're delighted now to be working with, with NASA. But we didn't selfishly go into that thinking that that was going to be some sort of outcome. I love that. I think the rule to give more than you take is a brilliant one and is actually less common than you would think. On the surface, it feels so, so simple, but yet it's not something that people are doing necessarily in a business or a personal setting all the time. How do you connect? What are your rules for connection? You know, you sent some questions out in advance of this, and it was such a wonderful exploration of my weaknesses. Because first of all, Ryan, my business partner, in terms of my compliment, is a master at connection. So by almost default, I must suck at it because we're kind of the yin to the other person's yang. But I, I think not completely thought through thought that I've been doing is that I somehow, some way, created very myopic connotations for very sacred words. So for example, family means something to me. Friends means something to me. Associates means the coworkers, business partners. And kind of like once I put you in that friend zone, it's kind of like if I was dating, if there's a beautiful girl that I was attracted to, but we became friends first, she never became a dating prospect. And almost vice versa. I think if we had a romantic relationship, we never really stayed friends. And I think it's a flaw in my wiring. Once I put you in a bucket, it's hard to move buckets. And it's really hindered my career because I don't really have friends that I work with. Like if you're a client, we're going to be friendly. I hope that we get along, but I don't really ever consider you a friend and probably vice versa, because I come with dollar signs above my head. Like I, I'm, they're paying me for that relationship. And like I always tell my coworkers and my employees, we're not a family. Like I have a family. Uh, we're a team, and teams are important, and teams have a role. But I don't like it when bosses stand up and say it's like family around here, because it's not. Like it's a different type of relationship. So I think I've struggled over the years, and my career has been hampered by if I meet you, I'm instantly subconsciously categorizing you. Are we going to be friends? Or are we going to find a way to work together in the future? Is there something that you can do for me, something I can do for you? And I don't know why. Actually, I want to start to unpack that because I think that I would like to have deeper, more meaningful connections beyond just family and, and personal friends and have you know different sorts of professional associates and colleagues and mentors that we can have a deeper relationship with versus right now, it, I, I don't let it go beyond a certain point because then that starts to encroach on, oh, that's my friend's face. So that's my family's face. Does any of that make sense? Like I said, it wasn't a fully fleshed out thought. It's, it's quite interesting, actually. And I think 
you're probably speaking in a way that many other people can relate to as well in the need to put people into boxes and perhaps mm -hmm. I wonder if it's also a result of you're a I don't know how old you are man who has maybe grown up outside of a more emotional connection within the workplace mentality I'm not sure if I'm if I'm barking up the wrong tree here first of all I'm 46 so you can say middle age I know you were so tempted to say <laughs> middle age so yes no I mean my staff affectionately refer to me as the robot and that's not a compliment so yes I I do sort of think elements of and I'm a huge like Brene Brown fan I do believe in vulnerability I do believe that vulnerability can convey trust, but within the constraints of what our relationship is. So if we have a professional relationship, I can display vulnerability in the form of we've never done this before, or I'm nervous about this, but I wouldn't introduce, you know, I'm having marital problems or my kids driving me crazy, or I'm gaining a lot of weight or whatever. Like I, I would never have crossed those streams of consciousness. I think within a professional setting, there is a tendency to lean on the side of the professional. And it's really interesting what you said about making meaningful connections with people who aren't family and friends, but I think meaningful connection starts with family and friends. What does meaningful connection look like to you? Well, I think the first part of that is meaningful. And I think by some quantitative metric, there is something about fewer, bigger, better. So I think Facebook got us into this mindset of hundreds or thousands of friends. And to me, again, that bastardizes the word friend, because I think a friend needs to show up in a way that doesn't allow you to have hundreds, because you just, you'd be exhausted. You'd be spending all your time serving others. So I, I, I you know, while I have lots of acquaintances, I think lots of people would say we are certainly friendly I have a very small group of friends and I've actually, you know, even just as recent as January of 2021, as I've been journaling, I've been trying to make a more conscious effort of keeping that friend group close because we're not close by proximity for the most part. And so I, we need to find ways to work on that relationship and to stay really friends. So I think meaningful is the first part, really define what do you mean by meaningful and even, you know, who's there for you? Who can you count on? Who can you be vulnerable with? Who can you be your worst self with as opposed to your best self? As well as that sounds very selfish. That sounds like you need them to be there for you. It's really the opposite. Like who are you willing to listen to? Who are you willing to support? Who are you willing to be generous with? Those types of things. So I'm trying to have a, a fewer, bigger, better, meaningful connection thing. And then the other part is I, I'm such a pragmatic guy that things like bachelor parties, weddings, funerals, graduations, like the big life moments, I can very quickly rationalize. Do I really need to go to that? Can I just send a check? Is it going to be worthwhile? Is anybody even going to notice if I'm not there? And it's like, that's just the wrong attitude. Like we should be looking for excuses to physically connect and to spiritually connect and to emotionally connect. And it shouldn't be done on a spreadsheet. It should be done based on investments that you're making in, in humans. Because, you know, as you do get older, you do just start to realize that, I mean, I hope my businesses are successful, but the reality is whatever legacy I leave is going to be on the dozen people who knew me best, 
who are going to speak fondly of me when I'm gone and are hopefully going to improve their lives or their businesses as a result of something that I taught them. So, you know, I got to, I, I, while I want to chase the biggest brands in the world and work with the best businesses and the reality is my impact's going to be very small compared to the legacy that I can leave with my most meaningful connection. That's a great answer. And you mentioned the idea that you like Brene Brown, but you're not sure of vulnerability, but that felt like a pretty vulnerable bit that we got to there. Practicing. I'm working on it. I like it. And you mentioned your journaling as well. I wondered if self-connection feels like an element of connection to you that you are exploring that is important in creating meaningful connections? That's interesting. I've always sucked at journaling and I've always sucked at meditation. Why I think I'm being successful right now is my previous attempts at journaling were selfish, where I was writing as a place to like just benefit, organize my own thoughts. And I felt like, you know, I could do that while I'm driving to work. I could do that while I'm on an airplane. I didn't need to like physically journal. I my mind's always processing and critiquing myself. So the, the, what I started in January was writing a journal that I envision my children are going to read someday. So it's not quite a memoir, but it's, it is me. I think they see a perception of dad that I hope that when I'm gone, they'll realize and they're now raising their own kids. I was human. I had flaws. I made mistakes. I was insecure. So things that, you know, teenage boys have no interest in listening to right now. I think that really, if you want to be really vulnerable, I think that's what hit me over the head was I went from being my kid's hero to, I I have that cats in the cradle syndrome right now. I think kids are gone. Dad's not that important, but I still feel like I have a lot that I want to teach. So I'm like, well, you can't teach somebody who doesn't want to be taught. So at some point they're going to grow up some point they'll be curious what their dad was like. And so it's much more productive for me because I feel like it's a service. I feel like it's a gift to my future grandchildren or posterity of, you know, who was this weird guy named Chris. And so it's more motivating for me to do it now because it has a in purpose versus it's going to sit on, like I would never go back and read my old journals, which is part of why they felt like a frivolous exercise. You know, the 20 minute act of doing it was productive, but then it was gone. And now I hope it's a twofer, the 20 minute act of self-assessment and analysis, and then somebody reading it at a future day. What an interesting perspective in that as a marketer, what you've done is, is determined your audience and written to your audience, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> you've yeah. created something that you can write externally that feels like you are creating something to give to someone else versus something for yourself. And you mentioned the idea of creating something that gives value, again, creates the connection that you're wanting with your children. I just think it's so interesting that you've taken a very personal thing and actually looked at it also from a very pragmatic marketing lens, almost even with the vulnerability overlay on top of that. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, and that's probably subconscious right but i do see the world as who's the end consumer what's the unmet need what's the value proposition that you can provide to that yeah and and it's more motivating because that's what i love to do in my professional job so it translates well to my personal life as far as what connection looks like now what do you think it will look like in five years time you know, before we got on air here, we talked about this book called The Lonely Century. And I, I had heard this author on a podcast and she was so compelling that I then decided I had to grab her book and I'm just maybe 20% into it. But 
it doesn't look good. I mean, she talks about this pandemic that more people are afraid of loneliness than of getting infected, right? And it's like, and it's not just social media and mobile devices. I think those are too easy of villains. One of the examples that I don't think she talks about, it, but I remember hearing is one of the culprits is affluence because like we had the chance to go to Kenya and go see African tribes. And, you know, these are little 100, 200 person communities, multi-generational and they're dirt poor, literally living in dirt huts and wildly happy. They're unburdened by all the things that we seem to think are so important. You know, walking an, a, a mile each way for fresh water. So everything that we in civilized society would look at as saying that's horrible. I looked at them with envy saying, I wish I had a community this close knit. And one of the things that happens is you start to make more and more money is people started buying bigger and bigger houses. And it was a sign of, I don't know, accomplishment. Their kids all get their own room. And again, up until about 200 years ago, everybody slept in the same room, even the parents. Uh, but kids having people that they can talk to and you're very, very vulnerable right before you go to sleep and right before you wake up and where your mind wanders and what you were just dreaming about and you're, you're tired and your defenses go down. And, like there's precious connection that gets made in those moments that you neuter when kids don't have anybody to talk to in the, you know, in the middle of the night. I remember as a parent putting two of my sons in the same room and we had a little baby monitor and that was one of the highlights is I'd go up, read them the story, say our prayers, put them in bed. And then I would just go down and listen to their funny little four and six-year-old conversations. And the innocence was just so endearing, the things that they were talking about. I think it's sad that we're thinking that the aspiration is to get rid of that. The aspiration is to get grandparents into a home, not into your house. The aspiration is to move on to acreages where you don't really run into your neighbors and put gated fences around your estates and all that kind of stuff. So I, I don't think we can just say Facebook needs more rules or we need to m minimize our screen time. I think we had to look at the constructs. There's a huge demise in organized religion. And I understand all the, the criticisms about organized religion, but one of the upsides was that there was an instant connection. I don't know anything about you, but we have a shared ideology around faith. Therefore, we have something to connect about, something to talk about. Cult brands find opportunities for people to congregate. So think about all your greatest sports teams. Like a big part of loving sports is the tailgate. It is the trash talking on social media. It is the wearing of the apparel. I think about Lululemon, one of my very favorite cult brands. They didn't spend any money on traditional advertising. They fostered local community of 10, 20 women getting together to do yoga in the store at night when they could push the, all the clothing racks was on wheels so they could clear it out of the way and have a studio to do yoga. Certainly a Harley Davidson, one of the greatest cult brands of all time, their secret sauce is their Harley owners group, a, a loyalty program that's not about earning points. It's about let's get together on Saturday and go for a ride because that's what motorcycling is really all about is that community of bikers. So I do think that cult brands are figuring out a way to fill the void that society and the demise of PTAs and sports leagues and religion have left that big you know, hole in our, you know, in our DNA. Because we do want to connect. We're wired for connection. We just don't know how to find it. That's such a fascinating point as well in that 
you touched on social media as maybe a reason that people are feeling disconnected and the need for connection. And I think a lot of people on the surface level think social media connects us, so it must be good for connection. But actually, when you look at any digital space, underneath the layer of the channel are these groups that are beginning to split off based on the commonalities that they've found. And I think you're right when it comes to brands creating that space because it allows them, it allows people to feel an allegiance to something that they might feel is a direct impact on their identity. I wonder when it comes to that space of creating connection, what the boundaries of ethics are for us as marketers in creating a cult community, what that looks like if that means there are people who are within and people who are without? Hmm. Well, I mean, my first thought is, uh, I think one of the ways that marketers get, get it wrong is they think they have to create it as opposed to nurture it. Because like Sturgis, the largest motorcycle rally in the state, is not a Harley Davidson sponsored activation, right? It's, it's 250,000 motorcyclists have decided we're going to go here and do this. And Harley shows up with like beer and pizza to make it more awesome, but they didn't have to create that. The other thing, marketers are so short-sighted and we, we have this, we suffer from short-term-itis where it's like, I got to win the weekend before I'm going to over-inject and stimuli, expecting an immediate response. But, you know, where you see it the most, Kendra, is we've been conditioned on Tinder. Right, think about Tender versus eHarmony. eHarmony boasts the most marriages from our site, and Tender boasts the most late night hookups. So Tender is like instant gratification. I want to see you, attract you, and bed you within 12 hours. Versus eHarmony is like fill out this 26-page application, nurture relationships over the weeks and months ahead because we're going to build something, you know, much more substantive. And my worry is that marketers have embraced the tender mindset of find, appeal, you know, transact, find, appeal, transact, versus really nurturing something of lasting value. I think long-termism versus short-termism is such an interesting conversation that I guarantee you and I could talk about for a long time. But the piece that I'm noticing is that people are taking a much more short-term approach and a much more instant gratification approach, which goes back to your example of Tinder as well. I'm going to repeat back to you what I think you said. What we should be doing is focusing less on the, the ways that we can appeal to ind individual identity and actually more about the ways that we can foster community connection. The world is moving to be increasingly virtual, very much digital. Do you think that we need to consider the ways that we foster connection and how that changes as well? Yeah, this is very relevant for us because we have an event called The Gathering. I mean, part of its secret sauce was to physically gather. Part of the secret sauce was to go to a stupidly inconvenient place, the Canadian Rockies in the dead of winter into a 200-year-old castle where you were sequestered. In fact, I remember in the early days, Las Vegas, was a sponsor of the gathering because a lot of Canadians go to Vegas as a travel destination. So they were thinking, hey, you got a bunch of Canadians up there, let's sponsor it. And it went quite well. And they were thinking about, well, why don't we, why don't we move this to Vegas? Or like, that'd be the worst thing for the gathering because 
when you go to Vegas, you want to go do Vegas. So it's like, how quickly can I get out of this business meeting so that I can go to the clubs or the restaurants, right? Or the shows versus in Banff, there's nowhere to escape to. You're kind of sequestered there and it forces collisions. And I would just sit back at the bar and watch like the head of the NHL talk with the head of GoPro and they would just explore possibilities together. And it was awesome. I remember Vice Media talking with Airbnb and we should be doing something around a content play. Those types of collisions don't happen in a very pragmatic, can I get you on a Zoom call to talk about, you know, business opportunity. It turns into a sales pitch versus a more honest, natural, but we like to talk a lot about normal and natural ways that connections are done. So the gathering has a no networking policy. You don't get to walk around and hand out business cards, but you can absolutely sit down next to somebody and have an honest conversation about who you are and what you're trying to do. So now we're trying to figure out how do you do that on, you know, a digital platform. The good news is, is a lot of people couldn't come to Banff. It's too expensive or too inconvenient. Going virtual makes it more accessible. So I do like that. More countries, more small businesses, more, you know, lower cost. It went from $1,500 a ticket to $200 a ticket. So a lot more people can partake now. But I think the answer is both. And then who does it really well is Ted. I mean, Ted has a lot of virtual content, but they still foster regional gatherings, you know, getting togethers. There's still sort of Mecca where you can go to California for their big annual uh, conference. So I think if you just went all virtual all the time, there, there, you would really would be missing something. I realize that we're coming to the end of the conversation by the natural fact that I only have you for 10 more minutes. So I'm <laughs> wrapping this up with you. But what is one piece of advice that you often pass on to others? I'm going to caveat this by saying, I know you probably have a million pieces of advice. I could tell from this conversation alone that there are many nuggets of wisdom within your brain. So when it comes to connection, is there any piece of advice that you would pass on? Yeah, I'll tell you, I, I love quotes. I'm a bit of a quote collector. And when I find a particularly good quote, it oftentimes will stay in my memory for a while. And it will make me a better person as I reflect on it. One of the quotes I heard a while ago was, don't tell me you're funny, just tell me a joke. And I think about when when you're starting to try to connect with somebody, you have a tendency, and maybe it's out of nervousness or insecurity, you have a tendency to kind of want to pump your own tires a little bit and talk about your accomplishments or your credentials. And it's a little off-putting as opposed to, let's talk about your problem. Like the best way for me to convince you that I'm a good brand consultant is not to tell you a case study, but to ask you about your problem and then to say, have you thought about this? Like just start doing it right? You know, somebody else once said, stop being interesting and start being interested. And that's the same kind of idea. Like, don't make it about you right from the start. Make it about what they're dealing with personally or professionally and see if there's something that you can add value. And if that tastes good, if that feels good, then they start to reciprocate and then it does become about you or it can go two layers deep because we all have our guard up. We're all so jaded and so skeptical. Like, uh, it's why I hate LinkedIn. And I get 15, 20 solicitations a day of people that have no, they've taken no time to really know me. They're just saying, I see you're here. Do you want to buy this? Or we could do this. And it's like, no, that's the most ineffective way to capture my attention 
is to start talking about how awesome you are, as opposed to, you know, Chris, have you ever considered this type of thing? I'm wondering if that might be something that, you know, how have you solved that? Because I'm struggling with that myself. So I don't know if that's a good answer, but that I know that that's, that is a, that's a quote that I think about a lot. Am I going around talking about how funny I am, or am I just trying to write great material that's hilarious? And people can then say, well, clearly he's funny because look at what he just said. And obviously funny in that sense is a metaphor for smart or expertise around branding. Or just telling a really good joke on occasion. Yeah, I, don't, I do wish I was perceived as being more funny, but I, I've clearly reached dad joke phase, which is not just bad joke. It's, it's worse because dad jokes are jokes that dads think are hilarious, but nobody else does. So you get that one-two punch of you're the only one laughing at what you say. I've been in that space for the past couple of years. <laughs> if it makes you feel better, I've been a dad joke lover since I was very young and it's never gone away. So I, I've also been the only one laughing at my own joke for, for most of my life. Yeah. Um, Talk about lonely. That's lonely. Being the only one laughing at your own joke. <laughs> you mentioned, I think there's actually two pieces to that when it comes to advice. One of them was this idea that you should be offering value to the other person. And the other one is to show and not tell. So final question for you. In true paper napkin fashion, who should we connect with next and what makes them great? Well, I would invite you, if you've enjoyed any part of this conversation, to speak with my business partner, Ryan Gill. Ryan has helped shape not just a lot of my opinions about business, but because so when I say co-founder of Camino Gavin, he's the other founder of that. But Ryan is just a master connector. He has a great origin story about being in the hospital as a young child and, and facing loneliness in, a, in a maybe a deeper degree than most of us have. And through his you know youth, realizing that his superpower was getting a group of disparate friends together to play the same game of you know, basketball or baseball and finding ways that this is going to be better if more people participate. He's now the CEO of Communo and is really championing this idea of the purpose, the noble purpose behind Communo's practical business objectives is to eradicate loneliness and understands that particularly within the creative community and particularly as we become more and more self-employed, Loneliness is going to get worse, not better. We're not going to have teams. We're going to be sort of these free agents that get brought in and brought out. And we're going to run the risk of just becoming very robotic. And we're only talking because there's a brief to be done, a project to get out, a deadline to hit, and a, pay, and a bill to pay. And like that's going to become very unfulfilling because you don't really have that camaraderie. And particularly in the creative arts, it's such a collaborative team sport. It's rare that you're going to ideate it, build it, and implement it all on your own. So I, I think he's you know far better uh, if, if part of what you're really about in the paper napkin community is connection. Most of what I've learned, I've learned by observing his action. Wonderful. I look forward to connecting with Ryan. And I think what you just spoke about around the idea that we are less and less connected is even more the case probably as a result of you get on a zoom call and there and oftentimes there's no room for chit chat and it is all very surface level so i really appreciate that you took the time to have this zoom call with me and to to get a little bit underneath the surface and get to know chris Neeland in a different way so thank you very much for your time
Oh, Kendra, it was my pleasure. Thank you. You've given me a lot to, you've exposed me to some weaknesses I now need to start working on in a, with more wholeheartedness. So thank you. I hope I'll be a better person a year from now, having a, thought through some of these things better. Wow. What a lovely thing to say. Thank you so much. That's it for today's conversation. Thank you so much for listening and connecting with us. If you liked the podcast, please subscribe and review. We'll be back next week with another impactful connection. Until then, be kind.